we're beginning to see how suffering is created. It's not created by the external environment. It's being created by our relationship with it. We're not blaming the external environment. We're not only being with suffering, but we're seeing the cause of suffering, which is grasping. The mind begins to quiet. The mind begins to relax. The mind begins to trust, as does the heart, as does the body. And in this trust, then, the heart begins to open and trust being vulnerable. The nature of the heart is empty. And what we mean by that is that when the heart is empty of things, it is full of love, it is full of God. When it is full of things, it is empty of love, empty of God. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome, everybody. So what I would like to talk about today is an overview of the whole spiritual path in a way that I think is very usable and productive and robust. And we will explore the spiritual path from three different channels, the path of the mind, the path of the body, and the path of living spirit or the heart. And we will explore the five different stages of the path. Of course, there are the seven chakras and the 12 steps and there's all kinds of different ways of breaking down the spiritual path to make it more structured and comprehensible. I've settled on five. So the five stages on the path to awakening, the journey to awakening. In fact, I'm calling this talk the journey to awakening because that's the name of a book I wrote with Ram Dass. The five stages are motivation, first step. Second step is trust or invocation. The third step is the heart and particularly compassion because we're talking about healing here. Fourth step is Tantra, empowerment, and the final step is wholeness or non-duality. We spend a lot of time and most spiritual groups spend a lot of time talking about the heart, talking about Tantra, talking about non-duality. And certainly there in certain schools of Buddhism, there's a lot of talk about being present about Vipassana, about mindfulness, about being clear, having a, a settled and open mind. But in my humble experience, both as a recovering scientist and as a longtime meditation teacher, it seemed to me that it's of really crucial importance to look at the very foundation of the spiritual path, which is motivation. Why are we going to do this difficult thing in the first place? If it were easy, everybody would be doing this. It involves looking at your narcissism and your cowardice and your guilt and your shame and your anxiety. Not an easy thing to do at times. Can we really begin to feel the longing that we have for connection, for wholeness? Can we really begin to ask how much of our life is being lived on automatic pilot. I've been noticing that there's a lot of moments in my day where I'm walking from my office to the bathroom or the office to the kitchen or the 
the front door to the car or the car to the grocery store. And just noticing how much of that time is spent where the mind is just doing its thing or how much of that time am I really present, embodied, awake, heartfelt as I'm doing these mundane things in life. Now, I've chosen to spend a lot of my life around people who have life-threatening illnesses, people who are dying, people who are grieving, people who have just been diagnosed with a serious illness. And I do that because more and more it keeps reminding me how precious this moment is, how precious this hour is, how precious this time together with all of us is right now. Do you and I have to wait until somebody close to us dies or we get a difficult diagnosis to begin to bring deep motivation to awakening? All these practices that we have and we're going to talk about today only work when you do them. That's the problem. <laughs> You've got to do them. My, my first teacher, Suzuki Roshi, one of the most quotable guys of all time said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. What is the most important thing for you? Now, it's easy to say, well, I want to awaken. I want to be a more compassionate person. I want to be a good human being. I want to help people. I want to be more loving. But if you really wanted that, how would it, how would it inform the way that we were spending these next couple hours together. So this thing about motivation is something that really needs to be carried through practice in a, in a, a daily, even a moment-to-moment -moment way of coming back to what is your motivation? What do you really want? And to the extent that you have strong motivation, everything that happens in your life will be part of the path. It will be grist for the metal, as Ram Dass's book title pointed out. The grieving and illness and joy and walking from your car to the grocery store. It, it's, all, it's all part of the path. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy a glass of wine or enjoy a good show on, on Netflix or Roku or wherever you like to watch your good shows. But it means that again and again and again, we remember why we're here, what this is about, and make that a contemplation. Make that something, that motivation, make that something that's penetrating into the core of our being. I often say mantra. When I was younger and more naive, I thought, why do I have to say a mantra a million times? If I said it really completely once, if I had super motivation, wouldn't saying it once be enough? Well, apparently not. But that's kind of the notion of motivation here. If, there, if we're really super present, then there is that connection with reality. There is that connection with God. There is that connection with self. After we have enough motivation, the next step is what I call invocation or trust. It's trusting that the main thing to do, the first thing to do is to be here now, to be present to drop into the present moment. From the standpoint of the mind, that's mindfulness practice. And there's no 
scarcity of material about mindfulness, Jack and Joseph, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, I noticed both have podcasts coming out this week with the Be Your Now Network, as do I. There's so many wonderful Vipassana teachers and teachers. I don't think I need to talk about mindfulness too very much. From the standpoint of the heart, what does it mean to trust? What does it mean to be present? From the standpoint of the heart, there's this quality of invocation that what we first begin to notice, like in, in Vipassana, we, we begin to notice what's going on in the mind and in the body. When, when we drop into the heart, we notice that a lot of times we don't feel connected. We don't feel connected to ourselves. We don't feel connected to each other. We don't feel connected to God. We don't feel connected to the earth. And that causes, for me, when I notice this, it causes a sense of pain in the heart, a, a sense of separation and grief and disconnection. From the heart, there's this yearning, this yearning to connect. Everybody has this, this deep yearning for meaning, and meaning comes out of connection. Whether you're a theistic person, and the connection is with God, or with, it's with yourself, with a capital S, or with all other beings, or with your deepest friends, or with the earth itself, this, this, this yearning for connection. Can we begin to pay attention to that? What does it feel like? Ramakrishna said, he said, people shed a jug full of tears for their love life and their money. Nobody sheds tears for God. If you cried as much for God as you cried for money and for, for sex, you'd be enlightened. <laughs> Might be an exaggeration, but probably not too much. Something to think about. But then the interesting part of invocation for me is trust invocation from the standpoint of the body. And how do we trust being in the body? From the standpoint of Piaget and stages of early childhood development. You've heard me talk about this, most of you who have been coming to these groups for a while. That this little child from in utero till about four years old is learning to be grounded and centered. And in my experience as a human being, and particularly as a meditation teacher and somebody who's been deeply feeling that meditation is a big part of my way into freedom. I've had this very clear understanding that meditation without embodiment, meditation without embodied mindfulness, without being grounded and centered, can go very deep. But then when you get up for meditation, it's very hard to integrate into your daily life. So that from the second trimester in utero till about two years old, this little baby, this little girl, this little boy is learning to be grounded. To trust that it's safe to be here. That in this moment, there is abundant support and nourishment that will allow you to thrive. And to, but to the extent that you or I had neglect, abuse, injury, accident, illness, shock, during this early part of life, that we got the message that it's not entirely safe to be grounded. 
and that we better pay really careful attention and get hyper alert. Uh, you may have heard me talk about my earliest memory is getting an electrical shock by putting a hairpin in an electrical outlet. I remember that with great clarity, the sun coming in from the right, my father in the bathroom shaving over to the left, the pattern on the rug, feeling completely joyful and curious, crawling. Oh, look at this. Look at those two holes. This obviously goes in there. What a great thing. Boom. So we all had experiences like that. If it's not one thing, it's your mother, right? So that very early on in life, unless you had a totally enlightened mother, which probably nobody had, that she had her own needs. There were times when, she, although she loved you, and I had very loving parents, they had their own needs, their own, their own stuff also. I grew up during a world war, one of the first three years of my life. Things were pretty chaotic. Grounding is the antidote to fear and anxiety. Whenever you are feeling afraid, you are not grounded. And there's a very simple practice, a grounding breath that we've talked about. We can do it right now. You don't have to close your eyes. You can close your eyes. But just imagine or feel, either one, that as you're breathing out, you're pushing an energetic egg out through the base of your torso into the earth with a slightly emphasized out breath. And on the in-breath, you're receiving this supportive grounding, this supportive grounding energy. Grounding, the word itself is explaining the feeling. You're feeling grounded. You're connected to earth, earth element, mother earth, mother with a capital M. So this first stage with about fear has a lot to do with mother and all the all the dimensions of mother trusting that sense of support trusting that it's safe to let down to let be to be here i find for myself and i think i'm not unique here that i've learned a lot more in my grounding practices than I just try to wash my mind because my mind is so tricky and manipulative and seductive Watch what kind of what kind of activities tend to unground me. What kind of emotions unground me? Can I keep coming back to trusting this sense of being in my body, and particularly being in the lower part of my body, the pelvic floor, the legs, and the feet? As I'm talking, can you remain resting in the lower part of the body? Just trusting that's what coming in. You don't have to be thinking about it. You don't have to be. It, it, it's not the thought that's the problem. It's the thoughts about the thoughts. And then the thoughts about the thoughts about the thoughts about the thoughts. Just letting the words come in, being grounded, trusting your inherent wisdom, your inherent yearning for freedom, that you're getting what you need moment to moment. We don't have to be anxious about it. Whenever anxiety, whenever fear arises, that's the signal we can be a little more grounded. Or we can go back to the mind stage and just be aware of the fear. Not what you're fear, not what you're afraid of, not the not the trigger, but the fear itself. What does it feel like in your body to be afraid? What are the sensations to being afraid? Or from the standpoint of the heart, 
if you're afraid, can you have more faith in what you have faith in? Self, guru, deity, mother, whatever it is, right? So the three channels are the three ways of working with fear. Fear is this initial stage of the, the demon to being present. There's a slogan in Tibetan Buddhism, drive all blames into oneself. And what's being said here is that instead of blaming the weather, the environment, your body, your neighbors, the government, the climate, the Russians, the Republicans, the Democrats, for what you're feeling, we, we don't blame. We say, here's what I'm feeling. I can be with this in my body, in my mind, in my heart, and, and deal with it. Be with it. In Buddhism, they talk about four kinds of laziness. I've just been exploring this lately because I tend to be kind of lazy, I think, sometimes. And it's the laziness that keeps us from being present. The first kind of laziness is the obvious one, where you, you like being comfortable. Right. Instead of meditating, I think I'd like to lie in bed a little longer and read the New York Times on my phone, or I think I'm going to watch a movie instead of doing this or that. The second kind of laziness, though, is one that really is interesting. It's being addicted to being busy, doing things all the time so you don't slow down enough to feel what's really going on. That's a laziness. It's a busy laziness, but it's a laziness. The next kind of laziness is doubt. You're thinking, oh, this is such a difficult emotion. I doubt that I could meditate now or be with it. I'm just going to get lost in this emotion. I'm not strong enough, clever enough, good enough to be able to deal with this. And the last kind of laziness is being cynical. I see what's going on, but I don't care. I don't give an F. I mean, look how messed up the world is. The world's all messed up. I'm just one person. I'm not going to do anything at all. I think all of us at times go through, cycle through these kinds of laziness. You probably know which of those you're most attracted to. Maybe not. I think I've, I've got all of those in abundance, but then probably all of us do. One of my first teachers, Munindraji, said, be simple and easy. It was almost like a mantra. He kept saying, be simple and easy. Just be simple, be easy, be here. Just don't get complicated. Don't try to fix everything. And Maharaji said, I'm always in communion with you. Of all the things he ever said, that's one of my favorite quotes. I'm always in communion with you. What would it feel like if we really believe that? When fear arises, when anxiety arises, when all the chaos of life is spinning around, Maharaji is there and we can trust just being centered, being grounded. Okay, so being grounded, second trimester to two years old, the antidote to fear. And then from about 18 months to about four years old, these are very approximate ages. The child is going from the physicality of being grounded to movement and ego development of being centered, dropping down into the lower body, into the lower belly. Being centered is the antidote to guilt and shame. Guilt about what we're doing, shame about who we are. And we can even expand that a little bit, that when we feel guilt, 
that's turning it inward. When it's outward, we're judging other people for what they're doing. And the opposite of taking shame and feeling shame about who we are is feeling grandiose and we're feeling better than other people, right? So it's not just the guilt and shame, but projecting it on to other people that either I'm guilty about what I'm doing or you ought to feel guilty about what you're doing or I'm ashamed of what I am or you ought to be because I'm so grandiose myself. Grounding and centering, centering the antidote to guilt and shame, judgment and grandiosity. I, I do a lot of counseling work, both with people on the spiritual path and people with critical illness. And a lot of what I talk to people about is getting grounded and getting centered, particularly when somebody is having a hard enough time that they come to me in the first place. It's often there's some crisis going on in their life that is severe enough or has enough juice for them that they can't be present. That all these great notions about deep compassion and tantra and non-duality, they have that in the back of their mind. But until you become present, these things aren't going to work. Take another couple of grounding breaths right now. Breathe in, breathe out, dropping down into the earth that supports easy natural in-breath, receiving this energy that is supportive. You're grounded, you're feeling earth element, earth mother, support, abundant energy that will help you to be nourished and to thrive. It's always there. And can you feel how the whole room is getting quieter as we do that? And if you're if you're working with dying people or you're working with people in crisis, often they're so frightened they can't tell the truth to themselves. Having the ability to very quickly quiet the mind and feel then the energetic quality in the communication is of extreme importance. And now going from being grounded to being centered, instead of dropping down it, through the, the base of the torso, drop down into the lower belly, a couple inches below the navel. The Japanese call it the hara, which means the sea of chi. The Chinese call it the dantian. Sufis call it the ka. So that as we breathe out, we drop down into the lower belly, bringing a balance of strength and relaxation to the lower belly. Shoulders, lower belly relaxed, strength also in the lower belly, imagining that if you had a big blood pressure cuff around your lower belly, the pressure would remain constant whether you were breathing in or out. There remains this strength in the lower belly. And in this being centered, we have access now to not just the physicality of being grounded, but moving into the world and in the beginnings of ego development. That the chi, the infinite chi of the universe, is now beginning to flow through the hara, the lower belly. And it's how a tiny, frail, elderly martial arts master can defeat a big, bulky, bulky, strong, young novice. Because it's not him doing it. It's the, the chi of the universe flowing through that's doing it. And if you're getting exhausted by certain relationships or certain activities at work or certain activities in your life. It's because as you're doing this, you're getting uncentered. I've talked to therapists who notice that some clients exhaust them, some don't, and they begin to notice that the, the ones that exhaust them are the people they can't connect with. 
and they can't connect with them because they get uncentered by what problem that particular cl the client has is something that uncenters them given their personality structure. So that we need to be grounded and centered in order then to go to the next step, which is going to be opening the heart and connecting. If there's not somebody who's there and solid, it's going to be hard to bear the vulnerability and the spaciousness of the open heart. Part of a short poem from Rumi. In, in this poem, there was a guy complaining to God that, that God had not been responding to his prayers. He never heard anything back. And God in the poem says, the longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. So that once again, this speaks very directly to trusting being here right now, invocation stage, trusting. The longing you express is the return message. Those qualities, those activities, those energies in our lives that uncenter us are exactly the messages that need to be embraced. It's not that we need to jump into fixing them, but that that is the return message from our prayer. That is the secret cup that we're hoping to drink from. And then a poem by St. John of the Cross about grace. What is grace? I asked God, and he, she said, all that happens. And then she added, when I looked perplexed, could not lovers say that every moment in their beloved's arms was grace? Existence is my arms. Though I well understand how one can turn away from me until the heart has wisdom. Everything is grace. Existence is my arms. If we really relate to everything is grace, it helps us relax. We're not waiting for grace. It's this. Now we're getting to the stage where we're grounded, we're centered, the mind is calming down. We're not trying to get away from suffering. We're pay, paying attention to suffering. We're beginning to see how suffering is created. It's not created by the external environment. It's being created by our relationship with it. We're not blaming the external environment. We're not only being with suffering, but we're seeing the cause of suffering, which is grasping. The mind begins to quiet. The mind begins to relax. The mind begins to trust, as does the heart, as does the body. And in this trust, then, the heart begins to open and trust being vulnerable. The nature of the heart is empty. And what we mean by that is that when the heart is empty of things, it is full of love, it is full of God. When it is full of things, it is empty of love, empty of God. When we're, we're caught up in what do I need to do, what's happening, the vulnerable, spacious nature of the heart is covered over. And only by getting grounded and centered, having embodied mindfulness, honoring the yearning of the heart, do we have enough foundation, enough solidness to begin to bear the profound vulnerability of the open heart. So that we're beginning to work with this paradox that we need to let go of having a fixed place to stand and trust that it's completely okay to be groundless 
even though we're grounded, groundless in another sense, that the nature of reality is groundless and we can open our hearts to that quality. Compassion, the ability to keep the heart open in relationship to suffering, is not an emotion. Compassion is a state of being in which the open heart meets suffering. We learn to relax and move gently toward what scares us, to let difficult emotions be something that softens our hearts, that we can open rather than in a conditioned way, keep pulling back when we're feeling pain in our hearts. Once again, in Buddhism, they, they often say the nature of the heart is emptiness. Emptiness has to do with a mind that is not fixed. Notice how uncomfortable we feel when there's nothing, there's no concepts, there's no ideas to hold on to. Emptiness allows us to open to compassion, to being empty of concept. And to do this, we've got to really work with fear, being able to understand the nature of fear. Not getting rid of fear, but being able to be with what it feels like to be with fear itself. The wonderful Christian theologian Richard Rohr says, God comes to us disguised as ourselves. <laughs> so, to the extent we could remember that, that all of this neurotic stuff that's going on, why is John laughing so much? <laughs> Depending on how neurotic you are is how much you're laughing right now. Okay, that's good. God comes to us disguised as ourselves. The heart really opens up, and that leads us to the next stage then of tantra or empowerment. This open, spacious, empty heart. There's still a, the ego there. We need an ego. The ego is a, is a tool. Like we can think, we can hear, we can ego. But it's not something right in our face all the time because the heart is large and boundless and empty that then we begin to very naturally open up to this space of empowerment or tantra, realizing what we were invoking in the beginning, this quality of sacredness, that which does not change, that which does not die, God, self, higher power, the mother, guru, is who we are and were all along. What you are looking for is who is looking. And not only are you that, but Donald Trump is that, and your neighbor is that, and the neighbor's cat is that, and the neighbor's car is that, that it all has this quality of beingness. So that we're going now from the first stage, of this invocation stage, we're giving up wishing that things are better. They're just the way they are. Be here now. The hopelessness of things being different than they are. We can hope that they're going to change in the future, but right now, this is the way they are. To then the heart stage, we're giving up practicing for ourselves. We're practicing for all beings. To this tantric stage, we're giving up our identity. I'm not Dale. I'm not Ramdev. I'm this sacred reality. I'm this channel for consciousness flowing through me, as is everybody else, as is everything else. The wonderful poet Hafiz says, I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. The astonishing light of your own being. 
so that all emotions, even difficult emotions, are healing messages. They're not things to be fixed. They're things to be heard. Anger, fear, shame, all these things are trying to tell us something about ourselves. If the motivation is strong enough, we can hear those messages. So in Tantra, the heart being so open, we can be opening to this blessing, the sense of grace in every moment, seeing no distinction between the mundane and the spiritual. There's another practice, catching hold of the first moment of perception rather than naming, conceptualizing. It's almost like surfing reality, moment to moment. We're right there with this moment and this moment and this moment, and then we, we fall off the surfboard into concept, and we're, we're swimming around in this whole ocean of concepts, and we jump back on the surfboard and paddle a little bit and get back on the, on the board. And to get back on the board takes a little bit of effort. But once you're on the board, there's no effort needed. You're just there. You're just surfing reality with, with an open heart, with this direct experience of the sacred nature of all reality. When I asked Maharaji, how can I meditate? How can I deepen my meditation? I just come from all these years of studying mathematics and my mind tended to be turbulent at times. He said, see all women as the mother. See everything as the mother, the divine mother with a capital M. See the sacred nature of everything, and then you'll be meditating already. And if you don't see the sacred nature of everything, you can try to strong arm your mind into getting a little calmer and quieter. But your grasping, your reactivity to reality is going to keep pulling you out of that place. So seeing it all as the mother, which leads us then to the final stage of the path, wholeness, non-duality, spiritual healing, not focusing on what's broken, not focusing on the individual, not focusing on illness, focusing on wholeness. The function of the guru is that he keeps she keeps seeing us as whole. Imagine having your best friend as somebody who always sees the, the pure, whole, open, sacred part of you. And even though you're feeling neurotic and horny and inadequate and all those other things rolled into one, she or he is seeing the wholeness. We're not getting distracted by pleasant or unpleasant projections. We're not too tight or too loose. We're surrendering this aggression that we feel when we're trying to deal with fear. And we're just feeling immense clarity combined with immense relaxation. We're letting visual impressions come to us very softly rather than going out and grabbing them. Right for a moment now, just as a very simple practice, imagine putting your attention at the back of your head, inside of your head, not out in the front, not by your eyes, but you're aware of sort of the back of your brain. And notice how things change when you do that. how there's not a sense of I anymore.
Or another practice is, as you're watching your breath, pay particular attention to the very end of the exhalation when everything disappears. Breathing in as you breathe out then. Before you begin the in-breath, that moment. The in-breath, end of the out-breath, that moment. And can you rest then in that profound, spacious emptiness? So once again, it's not that the thoughts are the problem. It's the thoughts about the thoughts. Can you merge your mind with the mind, with the enlightened mind, and then merge your mind with the minds of your friends who are confused, who are suffering, who are working with critical illness? Merge your mind with the one mind and merge your mind with the other. And in that other, there is no other because you're in the one mind and healing is happening. And one other short way here to play with this non-duality. So just bring your attention into your body and release energy downward. Just feel a moment of groundedness and centeredness. And then begin to dissolve the senses. Begin to dissolve, I'm hearing, I'm seeing. Dissolve thoughts and emotions. They continue, but they don't have any solidness. Dissolve the observer. Dissolve, I can't. Dissolve, I will. Dissolve, being serious. Dissolve into space. Fear arises, the need to understand. Who am I? Dissolve the struggle, dissolve the fear. Without being distracted, nothing particular to do. Distraction comes from basic fear for survival. Letting go of any need to create a frame of reference for experience. Dissolving even the expectation of survival. Resting, no matter what's going on in the body or the mind, moving or still, resting. Letting go of the fundamental deception that you need to survive. This deception which causes aggression, fear, lack of space, resting in space. This, of course, is what we die into. This, of course, is where we are already. Enlightenment is not something that is achieved. 
it is the revealing of what has always been here. We've talked about a healing journey, a journey of awakening. The very first step is being motivated, moving to embodied mindfulness, letting go of the narrative and being with things exactly the way they feel in the body. Fear, shame, guilt, whatever it is, what does this feel like right now? Grounded, centered. What is the somatic experience? And then we open our heart to what we're feeling. As the mind begins to calm down, the openness of the heart begins to appear in a very natural way by itself. Spacious heart, boundless heart, connected heart. And this boundlessness begins to reveal the sacred nature of things, the tantric truth that it's all sacred. So we've just created what I kind of jokingly call the tantric three-step, where whenever you're stuck, you have an embodied mindfulness of what it feels like, what's going on in your body. You open your heart to that and realize that it's all sacred. That can take five years or five seconds, depending on how stuck you are in that particular place. Boom, it can happen just like that. But it's something we have to keep going back to until we don't, which then finally leads us to non-duality, which is really not a practice. In fact, it's called a non-practice in a certain way. One of the slogans is no meditation, no distraction. Nobody's meditating. There's nobody to meditate. Who's meditating? Who dies? Who am I? Who are you? And nothing is a distraction. Even the distracted mind is it. Nothing is not beingness. Beingness possibly being easier to notice in the gap at the very end of the outbreath. Or when I stop talking. But it's there when I'm talking and when you're taking the in-breath. I found that this journey that I've talked about is very usable and instructive. Again and again, coming back to what's going on right now, not in a mental way, but am I present? Am I in my body? Is my heart open? Am I realizing the sacred nature of reality? So it isn't as simple as, okay, we, we have this spiritual path and everything's going to be okay. Well, everything is going to be okay. And we're going to die and good people are going to suffer and and all of that is true at the same time. There's this twofold process going on at the same time. On one hand, there's the physical, human, finite story of down power lines and brain tumors and wars and bodies that hurt and personalities that are kind of clunky at times and contextualized in the vast spaciousness of reality, that it's all pure consciousness, that it's all God. And both of these are true at the same time. I, there are stories of Maharaji hearing that one of his devotees had died and he, he cried and he cried and he cried. And there's another story that he heard somebody died and that he was equally close to and he laughed and he laughed and he laughed. 
right? And I don't know why. He didn't say why. Both can be appropriate. The world is very paradoxical in a certain way. I mean, it's hard to imagine God and, and babies starving to death in the same paragraph. Hi, everyone. Um, I want to share um, something with a group. I just uh, came back from a visit uh, from my parents. And my mother, she is uh, suffering from Alzheimer's dementia. And uh, she was in a very, very deep crisis. And um, when I uh, came there to meet her, um, she uh, did not know uh, who I am. And uh, then she was smiling to me and said, but you're listening so nicely. I never felt this before. And um, I had the feeling that I, for the very first time, I really met my mother. Mm. And the laugh is so overflowing. And um, there's um, so much grace in this. Just want to share this with the group. It's so beautiful. Thank you. I had an aunt who had Alzheimer's disease, and she came and stayed at my parents' house for a while when I was going to Stanford. And I'd, I'd come home on my motorcycle, and they said, don't even bother to talking to Elma because she, she won't understand the word you're saying. There, there was actually a sign on her bedroom door that had her name on it so she would know which room to go to and wouldn't get too confused. And I'd go into the room with her and we'd have these long conversations that made no sense at all outwardly, but it felt like we were really communicating, that we were really going beyond the normal communication of here's my thought, there's your thought, let's make sense back and forth. And it was just love. It was just verbal love, if you will. Uh, what, what, Nicole's story points out is that we are much larger, deeper than the, the rational mind. And this beginning stage of invocation after the motivation is invoking that which is beyond the rational mind, that which doesn't change, that which doesn't die. The mind with Alzheimer's, the mind without Alzheimer's is changing all the time. What is it that doesn't change? What is it that, that doesn't change if you're suffering or not suffering? What is the deathless? Who dies? Who lives? Who am I? What you are looking for is who is looking. <laughs> <laughs>